Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, it's Jackie Russo. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, our job is always to bring you interesting people that you might not meet in your daily life that can help you learn more about your business, figure out how to build a better brand, and basically um, see how we can keep that economy going. So today I am thrilled to be joined live from Atlanta uh, with Lauren Kane, who's going to talk to us about venture capital, uh, which is not something we've done here, but I've had a lot of clients who've gone through the process and I cannot wait to get her feedback. Lauren, welcome to the Razor Branding Podcast. Thank you so much, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Oh, there we now we can see you too. Um, so this is, I think for me, kind of a big uh, new opportunity for our listeners of Razor Branding Podcast. We have not had a venture capital specialist on before. And so I can't wait to hear how this process works. I've seen it, you know, secondhand as the agency for companies going through it, but not gone through it myself. So tell me just in general, what are you looking for when you're looking for a company to invest? Yeah, I mean, so it is for me, so I invest in women-owned, women-led businesses um, and I also support those through my business. Um, but when I, what I'm looking for, and I think most investors are looking for, is really a solid founder, um, someone who can take the company to at least a certain point um, within their growth and can scale it and has that vision and is going to execute that vision, um, knows where they're going and how they're going to get there. Um, I like to say you can take a you know so-so founder and amazing business and it can fall flat on its face. But if you take an amazing founder and a so-so business, they can, you know, the world's their oyster. So that's really what I look for is a, is a strong founder because let's face it, if you have a woman that's on a mission, nothing's going to stop her. She's going to get there. <laughs> true that, true that, preach. So when we talk about the difference between being a so-so founder and a great founder, um, tell me some characteristics that divide those two. And that may help people figure out which category they're in and how to get into the category they want to be. Yeah. And, and when I say that, you know, I a lot of times get founders, clients that say to me, you know, well, well, you know, I, I don't have the confidence, right, to, to, to get there. But it doesn't necessarily... It, you have confidence, you may be a little cocky, the confidence will come, right? The confidence comes when you get to that point that you saw yourself scaling to and you know that you can do it. When you're first starting out, it can be a head game. Um, and so sometimes that can get in the way, but really it is, you know that you're going to go where you're, where you want to go, where you're going to get to. And, and really, again, nothing's going to stand in your way that you know how to build out a solid team and also let go of what you need to let go of to be able to run your company. So if you hire a bunch of rock stars to take some of the, the burden off of you, you're actually going to let that go and let them do their, their, their thing. Um, not going to try and micromanage because you can't do everything. Um, and you know, you again, have that clear vision of where you're going and you're also humble of uh, you might not be the ultimate person to, to get you there. So if you vision your company being a billion dollar company, you might be the founder that takes it to, you know, a hundred million or 50 million. And that, you know, at any point that you're going to step back and not let you get in the way of your company thriving. Um, and so really the, a solid founder is someone who thinks about the company 
not necessarily always themselves. Um, and all the strong founders out there will will understand that and, and, and get that. Um, oh, for sure. No, yeah. you're, you're ringing a lot of bells. Uh, you know, there's an interesting story about a company that was founded here in Louisiana by two gentlemen, both named Richard, which I think is just so ironic. And one of them, I, I, this is one of the founders telling 50 years later about the formation of their company. He said he was a go fast, yes, let's get it done. And his partner, the other Richard, was a no, let's wait, slow down, let's think about it. And he has always said it, and I think this is brilliant insight into his own strengths and weaknesses, that if either Richard had been at the helm solo, they would have crashed and burned in six months. They would have either flamed out or never gotten off the ground. But that balance was what got them to where they are. So when you're looking at teams of founders, women-led, uh, women-founded businesses, do you try to see if one's going to be a little more dominant and take the reins to grow a little faster? Or do you look for that anchor to really kind of help settle them? Well, really it's both. Um, so there's usually one founder who's always going to take the lead. And what makes, if you have co-founders, so I always like to say you don't necessarily have to have a co-founder. That is not a prerequisite. Um, but if you have co-founders, what really makes it a dynamic team is that you do understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and you set those clear boundaries for, okay, I am in charge of this aspect of business. Maybe it's operations and this person is in charge of being the face of the company. And so you know those lanes and you stay in your lane. Yes, you might be each, you know, have, you know, co-founder status and equal stake in the company, but that you know what you're responsible for and you trust that that other person is going to handle what they're responsible for and you're not going to step on their toes. Because when a co-founder relationship fails, it is like a marriage. It is it can be a very ugly divorce and you don't want that to happen. And so you know, there is always going to be someone who will take the CEO spot. There should really not be a co-CEO. It should be someone who can make those quick decisions, you know, can can fly by the seat of their pants, is comfortable being the face um, of your brand, at least in the beginning. Um, and then that other person is more maybe behind the scenes. And, um, you know, they're maybe supporting them and they're, you know, handling back of the house while the other person is front of the house. It's funny that you would make that restaurant analogy. Michael and I say that all the time. We feel like running a business together is like running a restaurant. And so somebody's going to be in the back actually doing all the work and somebody's up front taking care of people doing all the work because that's really what it feels like. It's two people at 100%. So for people who think venture capital is only what they've seen on Shark Tank, um, tell me the differences. Tell me how it, it works in reality. Is it like that? You hear the pitch five minutes later, you're cutting checks for $250,000? No, I wish. Uh, it make my job so much easier. Um, it is not anything like that. And if you actually read the fine print in, in, when you watch the show, it is that they need to go through due diligence. So it's it's really not, uh, they don't get the check as soon as they walk off the stage. In reality, what it is, is building relationships with potential investors. And you pitch to them, you get them comfortable with your company and excited about your company. And then you go through what's called a due diligence process where they look under the hood of you know, your business, how it's operating or how you anticipate it's going to operate because you might not have, you might be pre-revenue. And so it's a, it's, it's a 
you know, theory, a thesis at, at that point when you're seeking investment. Um, and so they're really, you know, looking at your financial model, they're looking at your team, they're looking at your projections, uh, what, you know, any customer discovery that you've done. And they're also understanding who you are and, and, and if you have a, a co-founder, who they are, and seeing if there's a fit, because it's not necessarily every investor just because they invest in a company is a fit to invest in you so it you know both sides need to be comfortable and then what happens is then there's a term sheet which basically talks about the the, the deal terms and then you go into to closing um, and so then there's you know that's when you get the check and so it can be a quick 30-day process depending on how fast a, an investor can move or it can be a three to six month process with any given investor how much does it change the dynamic when a, a business founder and leader is now working with someone else's money? <laughs> yeah, um, I like to say, you know, it causes a founder to go from E to C. So it causes them to go from entrepreneur, that entrepreneur mindset to more of that CEO mindset because now they're reporting to someone, right? When you were, when they were, you know, and I don't want to say just an entrepreneur, but when they were in, cause that's not just a thing. That is a big, huge thing. But when they were an entrepreneur, it's more of, they could do what they wanted, right? That they were the only person responsible to themselves. And so they could make very easy, quick decisions. They could sign a contract. They could, you know, make that big deal. They could do, you know, things that could alter the course of their business in, you know, just sleeping on it overnight and then waking up the next morning and make a big decision. When you have investors, you now are reporting to them. And it's not in the day to day. It is more of, you know, that you are executing the vision that you told them that you were going to 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 do. Um, but it really causes someone to step into that CEO place because they now have they have to go on that path they've set out. And if they're going to veer, OK, investors, I want to go off this path. This is why this is the data that backs up why I'm going this direction. Um, so it's a more of they have to take more calculated steps versus quick actions. Right. You know, I think about some of the advantages that the solo entrepreneur has uh, before investment gets there, before there's um, a board to answer to or someone whose money is now in the game. Um, and one of the things that I think about are the tax benefits. And I don't want to get too far down into tax law because that's not my skill set. Uh, but I do think that there are a lot of things that entrepreneurs kind of roll into their business that's probably in the gray, I'm guessing. They can't do that anymore, right? I mean, it's got to be pretty straight on the up and up. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, I am also not a tax professional. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, it, you, there, there is not going to be any gray areas anymore. Usually when you take an investor dollars, it is the time that you either get a full-time CFO, depending on the size of the investment, or you get a you know part-time CFO who is, is really running your books. Because that should not be something as a founder that you are doing, unless that is your role um, yeah. as a founder, unless you are the CFO. Um, so, so yeah, you have someone now looking at everything under a microscope. You are reporting to investors on a quarterly basis, your financials. And um, you, they have to be on the up and up. And a lot of times what happens is companies start and they start as LLCs. But when you seek investor dollars, you actually need to be typically a C-Corp. Um, so you have to convert to, to that C-Corp, which then changes some of the tax implications that you had as an LLC. Right. No more writing off those trips to Europe as uh, 
business trips when they were just family vacations? So I don't know, you know? <laughs> no, I can just tell you right now. No, don't do it. Don't do it. Only if they invite us. Oh, okay. I can get behind that. It's research. Right, exactly. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So tell me how the pandemic and the crazy world of 2020 changed the VC world. Uh, did it make it harder, easier, more investors, less companies? What 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 did y'all go through? Oh my goodness. Um, well, it was kind of like with everyone else. What didn't we go through in 2020? <laughs> um, you know, it was in the beginning. I think everyone uh, ha had some pause, moments of pause of, okay, what is the market going to look like? What are things going to, you know, turn out to be? And no one knew how long we were going to be in quarantine or even what quarantine really even meant. Um, so there was a little bit of a slowdown in the beginning, but then this magical thing happened. VCs, which are typically venture capital, is a very old school antiquated business. Um, be, because I mean, I don't know what the median age of VCs are. I'm going to say a little bit on the older side. Um, it's usually an older white dude, um, that, that you're pitching to. Uh, and so they're, they were not super tech savvy. You know, it was a very in-person thing and pre-COVID founders, if they were going to raise a seed, pre-seed even seed series A would have to budget around 20 to $30,000 of travel expenses to fly all over the country to pitch. And that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot, no, even, no matter even if you have you know, money in the bank. Um, and so what happened with COVID is venture capitalists figured out that they could use this thing called Zoom. Um, and it was amazing. <laughs> right. And so what happened is the travel, because we couldn't travel, people were now doing Zoom meetings. And investors had more flexibility because you know, where they could do maybe one coffee a day, they could maybe do a couple meetings over Zoom. And it didn't have to be in person, that you didn't have to reach out and be able to touch the person to write them a check. And so it really disrupted the industry. And so what has been amazing is the deal flow. The deal flow has definitely increased. Now, that's also, I will say, a drawback because there is a lot of noise. So people who lost their jobs during times of COVID or really had sort of a come to you know Jesus moment with themselves saying, do I really want to keep doing that job that I've been doing forever or that I'm unhappy with, decided to start companies and then decided to go out and raise capital because they might not have had the resources in the bank. So now there is a lot of people who might not necessarily, in my opinion, really be totally in, two feet in to, to doing this thing. And it just like they kind of started on a whim, not to say that if you started it in, say, January, that you're not serious, but it's it's making it harder. There's more people that are out there raising funds. And so it's making it harder for the really strong companies who no matter if, you know, no matter what they would have been doing this to come to the surface. And so a lot of VCs, myself included, there's, a, I mean, I get, I mean, this morning, five LinkedIn outreaches of someone, wow. hey, would you invest in my company? Not the way to go about doing that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, there's just a lot of noise. And so, I, you know, that's the part that we're going to have to figure out how to, to filter out so that the ones that are really good, the good companies, can rise to the top and, and receive capital. When you think of the work that you're doing, you know, I, I think of you almost as a matchmaker. Do you approach it with that kind of mentality of finding those right personality fits? Mm -hmm. You have to. Um, you know, I... I mentioned a little bit before, you know, every investor is not your investor. 
just because they write checks doesn't mean that they're a match for you or your company. And so it's not even for me about necessarily matchmaking. It has to be for the company that the investor feels like it's a right fit for them. Um, and the investor feels like the company is the right fit because it is a long-term relationship. If you're early stage, it's five to 10 years. Um, and so you really have to be able to, you know, want to, to, to <laughs> have that relationship with that investor for a while. Um, and, and you have to know what you want out of the relationship. And so that is the matchmaking part. Like, what do you want out of it? Do you just want to check and you want someone who's going to be quiet? Do you want someone who's going to open doors for you that you weren't able to open doors, you know, get the door open for yourself? Is there something, a part of your business that you really need support in? Maybe it is that financial, that financial side. So you need someone with, you know, a, a really strong ability to look at a PL and see where the issues are, that kind of thing. That's what you need to design for yourself before you go out and you pitch. Because if you can figure out who are you talking to, right? And, and, and pitching is marketing. So pitching is all about how you market yourself to an investor. So your audience is not your ideal customer, it's your ideal investor. And so how you market yourself and your pitch needs to be talking to them. And so you need to know who you're talking to. And if you don't know who you're talking to, then you know what, you're not gonna, gonna get much response because you don't have a clear vision of, of who your audience is. I think you made about five really great points just then. And I want to circle back to a couple of them. Uh, first of all, knowing your audience, you know, I find so many entrepreneurs and founders know themselves, know their company, know their products, but they don't necessarily know their audience very well. And so I think that bit of advice you just gave is really important because knowing the audience, not just for the buyer, but the audience for the investor is huge. How do they go about getting to know? Is it through the savvy guidance you provide? Is it doing a deep dive into LinkedIn? Is it stalking, you know, cyber wise? Uh, what do you advise them to do? Probably not stalking, um, but <laughs> <laughs> just depends. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. So, so it's just like, you know, with customer discovery, customer discovery as a brand is something I'm sure you know, this like is something you should always be doing because as your brand grows and change, so does your customer, right? Your, or as your customers grow and change, so does your brand. And that's the same that holds true for companies. Your, who your ideal investors are, are growing and changing as the company changes. And so you need to always, yes, I mean, through working with me, that would be ideal for me. Uh, <laughs> um, but really, it's, it's having a conversation with yourself of like, okay, who do I see sitting at the table who do i want around this board because right. investors that put enough money in will want a board seat who do i want as in my advisory board how do i see this all playing out and you know even down to where does this person vacation the size of their family what do they like to do for fun where do they live you know that kind of thing even if it's not exactly spot on it at least gives you that vision and yes, it is doing that little bit of stalking. If you're, you know, sitting on LinkedIn, I don't recommend just sending out a connection request with a message of, hey, invest in me, I'm amazing. It's sending out a connection request. Maybe you put something in there that's, hey, I noticed that you like this. Um, and, and I do too. Have you seen this article? Then commenting on a couple posts that they make. Um, if they're on Instagram, you know, DMing them and, and responding to, oh my gosh, that point that you made about this company that really resonated with me. And here's why have, what do you think about this? And always asking a question so that they can respond to you and you can gauge response time. So that's also a helpful bit of information, but it allows you to see like, are they your person? You know, and that's mm -hmm. that you need to know, are they your person? 
So it becomes more about the quality of the relationship and the depth than quantity and width. You're not just trying to get as many interested people. You're trying to get the right one interested person. It's like dating to marriage. I mean, I think we just keep going back to that same point because it's true. It's so true. And I mean, if you have a million dollar round, you don't want it to be to be filled with a bunch of $25,000 checks. That is a really long capitalization table. That is a lot of investors that you're reporting to. You're probably going to raise more rounds. And so your, your capitalization table will just become more and more loud and more and more crowded. And that's actually a turn off long-term versus a good thing. And so if you could have five people who invest $200,000 in your business that are all in, that just want you to get off the ground or do the thing that you want to do, that means so much more than, you know, I can't do the math. Um, hundred checks. <laughs> we already said we're not tax um, guidance. Exactly. We also are not bankers. I think that's fine. Um, so Taylor Gage asks, any advice for young women who aspire to be in your position? Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing position as an inv investor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, so I would first start to just become involved in the you know startup world. Just go and meet companies, go to events or go online and go to events. There's a lot of great virtual things that are happening. Um, and just be a fly on the wall and talk, and meet up with other investors and just see, okay, how did you come into this? Um, you know, what do you typically like to invest in? How did you discover your investment thesis? Because every investor has an investment thesis that they typically hold true to. It's sort of their way to keep themselves in check. Um, and, you know, know maybe where your expertise lies and what you could bring to a company. But really, I would just be a fly on the wall. And also, you know, you need to have money. And so to be an investor, and this is also good for, for companies who want to raise to know, to be an investor, you have to be at least an, an accredited investor. So there's two levels. There's an accredited investor and there's qualified purchaser. An accredited investor is the lowest. So it's you have um, either a million in assets, not including your primary residence, and um, uh, joint, it's $300,000 a year in, in income. An individual, I believe, is two hundred um, off the top of my head, uh, and then qualified purchaser is you have five million in assets. Again, not including your primary residence, so you need to fit in that box to be able to be an investor formally in the VC world as we know it. Now, you can start off by doing small amounts on equity crowdfunding um, platforms. So finding one, there's I Fund Women is is a great one if you want to support females, um, and they also um, have a, a, a a black founder um, uh, uh, platform as well. Um, but, you know, you can go and invest as little as $100 in a company through equity crowdfunding. And so it gives you a chance to sort of play and it doesn't cost a lot to, to play. You don't have to do a large investment like $25,000, dollars $100,000. You can literally go in and, oh, I really like what this company stands for and let me, let me do a little bit of investing and see what ends up um, panning out. Look at what they're showing you, the financials, the history of the company. And the more time that you spend doing that, you'll learn what questions to ask, what you typically like, what you gravitate to. That was an excellent answer. Uh, I know you've got a YouTube channel with a bunch of different videos. Is that some place you would advise somebody to start just to kind of get the lay of the land and sort of get some of that basic instruction so they'll know what they're doing? If, so the YouTube channel is designed for anyone who's gearing up to pitch. 
So that is more the advice that I give there, not necessarily if they're looking to become a, a, a venture capitalist or an right. angel investor. Um, but I'm always happy to to talk to anyone about uh, you know my journey and and how I got to, to sit in the seat um, and what to look for um, and to help them maybe figure out a path to take of what groups to look to to check out and and who to connect with. Awesome. Uh, Blanche Gallagher just posted a question. What types of businesses are you most interested in becoming an investor in? I know it's women led, women founded, but within specific industry verticals, are you looking for tech? Are you looking for healthcare? Where does your interest lie? So I grew up in sector agnostic uh, world. Um, so I used to work for an angel group and they were sector agnostic. And so that's sort of where my, my brain is at now. My husband is a tech executive, so usually it ends up being more of a tech company because <laughs> we have an interesting dynamic. Um, so I say to him, like, you know, he ultimately, I say, can you please make a decision? Because I get very invested in a company, especially if it's someone that I'm supporting as a client. Um, and so I leave it up to him to do more of the due diligence, which he has M&A um, experience as well. So usually it is more tech driven. Um, we also have experience in hospitality and travel. Um, so, you know, and now he works for a fintech company, so we have that as well. Um, but I usually pass the due diligence on to him because I am one of those people that I will adopt all of the dogs in the pound. And so I just, <laughs> I get him like that sweet fella on the chair back there. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I usually leave it up to my husband to be that neutral third party. <laughs> You've got to have a tiebreaker somewhere. So I exactly. think that's good. Um, how often do you find yourself not just being the matchmaker, but also being the investor yourself? It's a very small percentage. Um, I'll be honest, maybe once or twice a year. Um, just because, um, you know, if I do that, it gets to be, um, it gets to be a, a, a weird, what is my role um, kind of thing. So I try to keep them as separate as I can, um, just so the lines aren't blurred for either myself or the founder I'm working with. Right. Um, what do you find you have more of more potential companies to invest in or more investors looking for deals? Um, it really depends on the company. Um, so it depends on what sector vertical that they are in. Um, I would say right now it's it's companies looking for investors. Um, and, and, and again, it goes back to that. There's a lot of noise right now and a lot of people looking for investment. Now there are a lot of dollars. So, so there are a lot of investor dollars out there. It's, you know, just becoming really strategic on how we um, get the attention of those investors. Yeah. Uh, I was reading an interesting article that uh, this is the, and I'm not going to get this stat exactly right, but it's one of the lowest uh, we've ever been at in terms of personal debt and the highest in terms of personal liquidity. So I'm thinking it's because we weren't spending a lot of money last year. We weren't traveling. We weren't going out to eat. We weren't wasting it, right? We were just earning it and saving it. And so that to me would think that there is definitely a lot of potential money out there. So both have increased almost equally at I can imagine that makes your job just so much harder. Yeah, well, and last year was, I think it was the most that has been invested in the VC world um, to date. So I think that people were, you know, not spending money on vacations. And so they were, you know, taking that and investing in a company. So most investors do have 
you know, earmarked at the beginning of the year how much they're going to invest and 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 how much they're going to spend on investments for for their portfolio. Um, and I think last year probably disrupted that a little bit because they're like, well, I'm not doing this over here. I might as well just move that, you know, that slush fund uh, over to the investment portfolio side um, and gave them the ability to, to diversify even more. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's... Um, yeah, it definitely, there's a lot more funds out there right now. So, uh, which is a fun thing to, to have. And I, and I hope that everyone that wants it can, can, can get a piece of the pie. That's awesome. Um, and to me, I would think that when we're seeing, um, you know, as, as horrible and tragic as so many parts of last year were, there were some benefits. And so this becomes some of those benefits that just happen to be the, you know, the outcome. It's a good thing when you look at it that way. Yeah, it is. Sure. Um, so one of the other things that I was wondering, you know, as we're talking about being um, sort of sector agnostic, which I love very much because we talk all the time at the agency about being agnostic as well um, when it comes to different media outlets. But I am seeing so much uh, in terms of just activity and action around businesses that support improving the climate, improving the environment, uh, being more energy conscious, et cetera. And that's everything from, you know, air conditioning systems to uh, solar wind farms. Are you seeing that uptick on your side as well? Um, well, I think it's, you know, really anything that we do, any companies that make better what we already do um, or make, you know, make the environment better, make it, you know, better jobs, better work environment is also a big one. Um, and anything that's COVID proof, um, it is, you know, COVID, anything that's COVID proof was also a big, big trend. Um, and I think focusing on the environment is a, is a big one. I think during COVID, we saw the ramifications of we weren't on the road driving as much, right. you, know, or, you know, all of that. And so that brought awareness, more awareness to the environment because it was a tangible thing people could see that there was an impact. And so, yes, naturally, that is, you know, you're going to see more of that come to rise to the top. I think we're also seeing more medical devices um, because of the struggles that people went through during COVID. Um, and I think we'll probably see some drug companies emerge as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, we learned a lot. And I think it's great that we're taking what we've learned and, and companies. This is what I love about entrepreneurs, taking what we've learned and pain points and then like try, and trying to fix it. You know, I, I love that. I do too. Um, I read 21 hats. I don't know if you subscribe to the morning newsletter, which I just think is awesome. And just this morning, there was a, a little article on in 2013, I'm going to say there was maybe $400 million a year um, in, in business for companies focused that way. And last year it was 2 billion. I mean, it's some kind of crazy growth like that. So that is a huge uptick. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see. And you're right. It goes it goes with healthcare. It goes with all of these different technologies as we evolve and grow. But that green energy sector definitely seems to be a place that's seeing some rapid, rapid growth. Do you have investors that come to you and say, yep, yep, women-owned, women-founded, absolutely, but this category. I mean, do they get that always. specific? Okay. Yes. Yes. Always. And that's part of their investment thesis. So investment thesis either comes from where you have experience based off of your work history background. Um, I had this, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, this angel who is this tiny, tiny woman who maybe weighs a hundred pounds 
Marjorie. And, um, you know, wears a bun, um, lives in Manhattan in this beautiful apartment. And when she's, she's so quiet, but when she speaks, you listen and you're like, well, why am I listening? Well, cause she was a former Exxon Valdez executive and like, and that's, and she will sit and listen. And then if someone brings up something energy related, she always has some input and, and gems because that's where her experience lies. And so she can really pick apart a company where for me, my background, probably not the best person to talk to about that because I don't have experience in that. Right. And so, you know, it's a little bit harder for me to understand and get it versus Marjorie who can get it in two seconds. Um, so every investor has their investment thesis based on whether their, their background, their work history, or something they grew up in, or they were curious about and have started to educate themselves on. And a lot of times, you know, as an investor, it's the next career. And sometimes investors say, okay, hey, I really want to learn more about this thing called blockchain or, you know, artificial intelligence. And so that's where I'm going to gear my portfolio. So yes, I, I, investors always have a thing that they're focusing on. When I think about the places where people can invest, you know, obviously the stock market, real estate, what is it that you think really grabs people and makes them want to be in the VC world versus those, and I'm going to say a little safer, maybe a little more hands-off, maybe instead of those approaches, is that just an internal drive you see in some people to be more involved and more engaged? Yes. And, and some people are not engaged at all. Some just want to write a check and treat it like, you know, it, it was money that they put, you know, in the stock market and they'll check back and see how it's doing. Um, but most do like to have some involvement. Um, and hopefully that's driven by the conversations that they've had with the founder before they, they invested so that they both understand. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really, well, first and foremost, it's to make money. So that's what people need to understand as investors invest in a company to ultimately make money. And if you hit it right, you can make more money faster investing in a startup than you would in the stock market. However, it takes a lot of investments to be able to, to do that because typically what happens is if you're doing early stage, a third is going to fail and hopefully fail fast. A third is going to give you your money back. Um, and then another third is going to have a potential of anywhere from 10x or 20x return on their investment. And investors now are really, you know, there is this trend of like, oh, we've got to back these unicorns, right? Whatever company gets a unicorn status. Um, but, you know, it's it, it, if you can do that, if you can land on a unicorn a couple times, you can be set forever. Right. Never worry about it. And then it just becomes fun money that you invest in companies. So wouldn't we all like to get to that point where it's fun money? <laughs> I'm, I'm following you wherever you lead. If that's what you're doing, that's awesome. Um, when, when I think about that, those investment strategies and finding those unicorns, um, tell me a home run you've had. You don't have to name names. I don't want to get into anybody's personal business, but tell me one that you look back on and you think, man, that was a good deal I put together. Yeah, it was not a deal that I put together myself. It was one that I I had um, the the joy of investing in. It was actually a um, one of the first subscription boxes for children before it was even a thing. And so this was uh, several years ago, more than I care to count. Um, but that <laughs> one has been successful. Co-founder team, um, co-founder team where they understood you know each other's lane and continue to do that. Um, there's each other's strengths and weaknesses. And one founder, you never see her ever. Um, and the other one is the face of the business, but they're just rock stars. And uh, they figured out where the industry, the market was going before anyone knew it. And, and it's, it's been amazing. 
That's awesome. Now, do you stay? So this particular example or other similar to it, do you stay it in and, and ride it forever? Do you cash out once you're starting to see the, the exposure and the growth? How do you gauge as an investor how long you want to be in? So typically, and, and this is, you know, for founders, you should know this. Typically, an investor, you need to know how you're going to get an exit for an investor. So there needs to be an exit plan. It's never going to work out exactly how you how you plan it. Just as you know, FYI, um, <laughs> it's with most things, right? You plan it, it never happens exactly. Um, but there should be a plan to exit in five to ten years, and that exit can look like you know you were acquired by a larger brand, you you know went public or private equity. So those are really, and you should have investors that are going to stay into that point. You shouldn't have investors that say, okay, I'm going to give you, you know, all this money at a pre-seed um, stage and I want my money back in a year. That's not possible. That's not humanly possible. And so as an investor, you need to be in it for the long haul. And as a founder, you need to make sure your investors are in it for the long haul. If they think it's going to be, you know, a quick turnaround, you need to set reset their expectations a little bit. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, when I think about your career, tell us, how did you go from working at the previous company where you were um, involved in their investing to now being off on your own? What was the catalyst for that? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I think for me, it was being in that environment. So I was director of operations for one of the country's largest angel groups, uh, Golden Seeds. I was there for six years and um, it's a New York based angel group and they have a venture capital side. Um, and so I was the face uh, of Golden Seeds once we invested in a company. So once it became part of our portfolio, and then I also was a fund administrator of our, uh, at the time, three venture capital funds. I saw so many companies um, over the, that time. And I mean, I saw more companies pitch than I cared to admit <laughs> ever. Um, I will never sit down and count it. Um, <laughs> but I really, what grew in me was a passion to support female founders because I didn't understand how really how big the struggle was. And that the only way to make a change in females having access to capital is that other females need to turn around and invest in them. And, you know, we need to bring it full circle. And a full circle can be that you are able and, and have the resources to support these companies and invest in these companies, or, you know, directly now. Or you build a brand that you then, as a founder, have an exit and you have a meaningful exit and have money in the bank that you can turn around and invest in another female founder. And so you pay it forward. And so that, to me, was a big part of, creating my business and then also becoming an investor. So in creating my business, it, it gives me the ability to create founders, help founders who not create founders, they're already existing, but help founders who will, you know, raise capital, go on in several years to have that exit and know how important it is to, to then support other female founders. And then for myself to be able to do it and practice what I preach is, is very important. And then I was lucky that, you know, once, so we were living in New York, my husband and I, and then we moved to the Atlanta area and we were lucky enough to have our own exit events that, um, and have several that allowed us to be able to, to continue to, to do this work. And, you know, I don't look at investing in women founders and and you can invest in whatever type of company that, that that you would like to invest in i do encourage people to invest in underrepresented founders it doesn't have to be just women but um you know black and latino founders have an extremely hard time gaining access to capital so i encourage you to think about maybe investing outside of the normal white dude 
box. Um, but you know, if you can do it, do it and, and, um, know who you're supporting. And if you come to it from a place of you want this company, this founder to be better, you're help lifting them up and you have a better chance for, for success. And so that's really where, where I come to it from. I think that founding story is awesome. Uh, and I love that you've taken this initiative and gone off on your own. For people who don't know the difference, um, could you explain the difference between angel investing and venture capital? Sure. So angel investing is, can they angels and venture capital funds can invest at the same stage. So that a lot of times is a misnomer that angels invest super early and then that's it. But there are VC funds and angel groups that invest in pre-seed, which is usually pre-revenue or very, very early revenue stages, seed, series A, series B. And then you start to sort of phase out the investors you had early on that can't keep up with those further follow on rounds. Um, but so angels use their own money. So they are making their own decision direct to directly invest in a company. Um, and so they, you know, are doing the due diligence or are part of the due diligence team and they're hearing all the, the information about the company and making a decision on their own. Um, and they can do it through an angel group and have a pooled investment, but it's still their own money. Venture capital is a fund. And so that fund is made up of limited partners who are all the people that put in money into that fund. So if it was a $50 million fund, there are a whole bunch of investors behind that. And then there's general partners. And the general partners of the fund are the ones that make the decisions. So the limited partners don't have any say in what investments get made. They know what the fund stands for, what their investment thesis is. And so that's typically what they have, have linked to, gravitated to, um, and it's usually aligned with what they want to see in their portfolio, but they have no say and they don't interact with the companies. Um, so it's more of a way to make a passive investment. Um, so if, if it's someone who is a busy person that you want to invest, but you don't have the time to put into the due diligence, a fund is a really great way to put money into building out a portfolio of companies so that you're not just trying to back one company and hope that it's going to get there, you might have the opportunity to back 10 or 20 companies in that portfolio. That is a great explanation. Thank you. <laughs> um, when you think about um, what you've gone through to kind of get you here, what is that um, kind of big moment in your career where you were like, this is the path I'm on now. This, this is the event that set me for where I was heading. Uh, I think it was the day that the recruiter called me to ask me if I wanted to work at Golden Seeds. Um, <laughs> and it really, um, Golden Seeds at the time was was a startup in its own right um, and probably still operates as such. Um, but it was walking into an office in New York City with all female partners wow. um, and a good chunk of uh, me members, around 300 members, where 80% are female, 20% are men, and the men that are in the room support women. Um, and, you know, watching these women who come to, for capital finally getting the support that they needed and, and education and validation, um, it becomes one of those things that it's a privilege. And I understood very early on, it was a privilege to be able to witness that and be involved in companies in an early stage. And so when I went out on my own, I knew I wanted to continue to support female founders because it is a privilege to get to work with them on a daily basis and see where they're going and 
to be early enough that I do get the luxury to say, I knew her when. <laughs> I knew her when. And so that it really built a fire in me um, that, you know, I don't think will will ever go out no matter what I'm doing in my life. I will continue to support female founders. Um, and, you know, that that's something that I don't you think will ever change. And, and I hope to instill into my son um, as well. That's awesome. Describe a typical day in your life. What's it like? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> today it's, it always starts with uh, me time. And I know that that's so cliche, um, but it really does start with, I, I do a little meditating and stretching. Um, and then I take this cutie for a walk. Um, and then I am in mom mode for um, a couple hours. And then it is client mode. Um, so for instance, today it was, you know, getting my son ready, doing some what we call brain work for preparation for first grade, because that's a really hard grade. Uh, about, first grade and junior year of high school. Those are the two toughest ones right there. Um, I'm like the brain work mommy probably only can do until third grade. And then, then you're out. Yeah, cut off too. I'm like, after third grade, I can no longer help you. Good luck. I'll get you a tutor. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and and so then after this, I have a client call, and then um, I have a half day client that I'm working with for four hours on her pitch strategy. Um, and then I go back into mom mode, and we have swim practice, and I make dinner, and then I um, die in bed. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's bedtime? Eight or nine, or are you like an eleven, twelve kind of? Person? No, I'm a nine. I need. I'm I'm a nine, and I'm in bed at nine usually, and up around 5 15. Um, right. I, I need sleep. I'm not one of those people that can run on like four hours. I know uh -uh. I need eight hours. <laughs> right. Right. So how do you stay on top of all the input? There's gotta be, you know, all this information coming at you, podcasts, you're reading books, you're reading, um, articles you're subscribing to blogs, you track. How do you process it all? What are your shortcuts? Oh, God. Um, I mean, you know, I haven't found a thing that's like 100% foolproof works all the time. Right. Um, I have my go-to things, my go-to podcasts, my go-to like shortcuts where I get, you know, a skim email that I can just read, oh, this is what happened or Apple News, let's a recap of yesterday, um, that kind of thing. I get really good at reading news headlines and mm -hmm. deciding if I want to click in um, and, and, subscribing to only things where I can set my settings of what my interests are. Um, but it's, it's an ongoing battle, right? There is a lot of stuff out there right now. Um, and you know, I, because I do get, I am a creature of habit, so I do get stuck in my routines. Um, and so every now and then I try to like throw something new in there so that I will, you know, remember to check out new stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 it it's having, so in the morning, one of the things that I do is I check my email and I try to do that before I go to bed and, um, when I wake up in the morning. And so if I can stay to that. I can look at the news headlines. I can go onto LinkedIn and, and spend a little bit of time, but I try not to have social media be part of my day. Um, so I have designated time for it. Um, and so that's helpful. Um, but it really is getting really good at like skimming all of the headlines. Right. Yeah. Now, when you're going through your email, are you cleaning out your inbox completely every day? Or are you just trying to keep it to a certain number that you can sleep at night and feel like you're kind of on top of it? 
So my goal is always zero impacts and I'm not always the best at it, um, right. especially in the summertime. But it, yeah, and it gives me anxiety that I don't have a zero inbox right now. Um, but no, I'm not someone who had, no, my husband has thousands of unread messages. Nope. Divorce him immediately. They're, they're Sorry. Mostly from me. So that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just ignoring me. Um, but yeah, I, I strive to have a zero inbox because yeah. it's the only way my brain can stay on top of things. Um, I used to have a boss who would get to a thousand, couple thousand emails and she would just archive everything. And she had the rule and she's like, if it's really important, someone will reach back out to me. Wow. And, um, I don't subscribe to that because I don't want to be. That, that makes my heart heavy. I, <laughs> like I just can't do the red dots. Like any number in the dot, I'm, I'm not yeah. having it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know. No, I am. I am a creature of, of habit and, and, and I fear the red dot. No, 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 no. Um, who's your longest standing friend? I don't want to say oldest. So I'm going longest standing. My brother. Okay. What does he like the most about you? Gosh. Um, I was going to give a snarky big, sister. I was hoping for it. Please. <laughs> um, what does he like most about me? Oh my gosh. Um, probably that I take care of everyone because mm -hmm. that takes the pressure off of him um, and that I have a dry sense of humor. And so the two of us can spar and neither one of us takes offense to it, um, yes. which doesn't always translate to other relationships in my life. Right. <laughs> but, you know, as a, as a brother, and, and, but I do tend to surround myself with people who have a dry sense of humor or at least understand my sense of humor. Right. Um, uh, but yeah. And, and, and I can also, you can make fun of me and I can take it on the chin and it's because uh -huh. he conditioned me well. Nice. So. <laughs> what does he like the least about you? Um, that I am a recovering director of operations. <laughs> and tend to want to process, have a process for everything. Mm -hmm. everything that drives him nuts. I bet so. All right. Yeah. We have made it to the lightning round. So uh -oh. first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. Favorite place on earth. Where I live, Serenby. Nice. Mm -hmm. uh, movie you can't turn off? The Notebook. Oh, good choice. Uh, TV show to binge watch? Ooh, I just finished it, Mayor of Easttown, because that's about a right? town. Well, I grew up in, in, well, it's a fictional town, but I grew up in that area. So No, no way. Yeah, yeah. Did they accurately portray your area? Um, a little bit more gritty than it actually is, but yeah, for the most part. And the accents were a little off, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm from Louisiana, so you're telling me my own story right there because <laughs> nobody ever gets it quite right. Um, favorite book? Ooh, um, ooh, Referral of a Lifetime. Oh, I haven't read that one. Hold it's on. a good read. I highly recommend. Write it down right now. And favorite podcast to listen to? Um, uh, Guy Raz, How They Built This. Oh, that's a good choice. There's also pitch and, but Guy Raz, I mean, he just, he digs in. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Favorite car? Oh, um, dream car is a G-Wagon. Um, nice. Yeah. A little mom car thrown in there, but like, you know, hot mom car. Definitely. <laughs> um, favorite festival? Are you a festival goer? No, not particularly. No. Okay. Mm -mm. Totally good I answer. You like concerts, so I will... Well, that's coming up in a minute, so hold that answer. Um, pettiest pet peeve? <laughs> uh, loud chewing. <laughs> I have to tell you, that is the answer more often than not in this podcast. If my husband would just listen to it. <clears throat> <laughs> 
Um, I'm eating a salad and mine says it sounds like rocks. I'm like, it's lettuce. It's not even that crisp. Um, favorite musician? Well, growing up, Whitney Houston, Pink. Oh, have you been to one of her live shows with the acrobatics? No, it's on my list. It's impressive, my list. impressive. Yeah. Uh, favorite song to sing at karaoke? <laughs> um, Lose Yourself by Eminem. Oh, okay. So I apparently am either a good mom or a bad mom, not sure which. All four of my kids know every word to that song. I love it. I do too. I mean. It's a great message. It is. Um, favorite sport to watch or play? Baseball. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Favorite meal or food? Oh, favorite meal or food. I, I'm a foodie, so it's really anything as long as it's good food. And it can be from the biggest hole in the wall, but as long as it's good, um, I'm maybe a noodle bowl, a good noodle bowl. Okay. Your favorite foodie show to watch, like TV show? Um, Top Chef. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of those choices these days. There's so many. Um, have you by chance caught, um, and oh, I'm going to blank on his name for a second. He is doing a city by city tour of food throughout Italy. Um, oh, you know, no. actor, bald, the black glasses, Michael, tell me. Tell me his name. Hold on. I think I just got a little private chat. Uh, Tucci, Stanley Tucci's tour oh, of Italy. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, oh my God. gosh. Prioritize it immediately. Okay. okay. It is unbelievable. He goes town to town throughout the country and you get to see how things are farmed, how they're made, recipes, restaurants. It's foodie heaven. I mean, to eat my way through Italy would be the way I'd want to die. I have but to tell you, I've done it three times and I cannot wait to go back and do it again. Italy has the best food and the cheapest, most amazing wine that goes with it. I, we were in Lucca, uh, which is in the Tuscany, and um, you went to the hardware store in town, and they take in the hardware store, like screwdrivers, hammers, nails, take you in the back, and they've got these huge metal vats. You bring your own. Um, it looks like maybe a Kentwood jug, and mm -hmm. fill with wine, and that's the table wine for dinner. Two fifty is what it costs to fill a gallon jug. Two fifty. Two dollars and fifty cents. I don't mean two hundred and fifty dollars. Like we're missing something. <laughs> about an extra thirty pounds by my calculation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Michael ate gelato every block. I don't mean every meal, every block. Like every block we would stop and he we'd turn back and he's got another gelato in his hand. It was awesome. Awesome. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> highly, highly recommend. Um, what question should I have asked you in the past 54 minutes that I did not? Oh, mm. well, I guess a little bit to tell people a little bit about how I support clients as a Please. Um, so, so I help female founders with their pitch strategy and their investor strategy. And um, it's really for those that need help are, are currently pitching and are, are banging their heads up against the wall or getting ready to get started and don't know how to navigate this world. Um, and so we develop a pitch strategy on how they're going to get the attention of their ideal investors. And then that investor strategy of how they're actually going to reach those investors, you know, crazy idea. Um, so yeah, I mean that, and that's the work that, that speaks to my heart. Other I think that's that, awesome. <laughs> so, so you're a coach and a matchmaker. Yes. Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah. I love that. Lauren, thank you so much for your time today and your insight and your wisdom. Uh, it was awesome. This was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being on. And uh, I have to tell your brother, you were not too snarky. I thought you were very good.
I know. Sorry. Next time, or maybe off camera, we'll go total start. Um, so for everybody listening, um, I think for most entrepreneurs, it is their dream uh, to find a way to build and grow and scale. And they can't always do it one client at a time or one sale at a time. Um, so you need Lauren in your life. Uh, you can check her out at vcworthybusiness.com and learn exactly how you're going to woo all those investors in. You don't need Shark Tank. You just need Lauren. For everybody, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and uh, we'll see you next time.